Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've been walking through uh, the several sermons, several weeks, just on um, spiritual growth. What are some tools that we can latch onto um, in order to see spiritual growth in our faith? So what I want to do to get us started is just... Uh, really quickly go through what we've talked about so far, and then we'll dive into our text today, which is 1 Timothy chapter 4. So first, first sermon we talked about was consecrating ourselves to the Lord sacrificially for his use, right? We want to offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, um, therefore we consecrate ourselves to him. We talked about obedience. We don't want to judge obedience by the outcome, we want to just simply obey based out of our faith for, uh, for Jesus. Service, God brings us opportunities to serve. There are service opportunities right here in your church. We could name them for days, right? Opportunities for us to serve. But Jesus actually forms us and shapes us in those opportunities. Suffering is a spiritual vitamin. Loved this sermon. It was so encouraging. No, uh, suffering is hard, but it is a vitamin, right? And at some point, vitamins, they stop looking like a uh, Flintstones character, and they start just looking like, you know, little orbs that are tasteless and pointless even. But no, like suffering is a spiritual vitamin. Sometimes Jesus brings us into the valley because he can teach us better there. And we can learn to rely on his strength and not ours. Last week we talked about um, that there is no secret, right? There's no secret sauce with our faith. Uh, if you want to know God, there's no shortcut to know him that takes you around his word. There's no secrets. There's no shortcuts. And today we're talking about conditioning ourselves for godliness out of 1 Timothy chapter 4. So I'll tell you a quick story, uh, if I could just be vulnerable before you for a second. A few weeks ago, we were on our, we're on our mission trip, a uh, student mission trip in Galveston. And uh, we are tasked to build this like deck, a platform that we're going to put a generator on to raise it off the ground because it's Galveston and they take on water sometimes, right? So we want to raise this generator so it's free from water. And they show us just a picture like, hey, make it look like this. Make it look like that. And we're like, cool. So we, we go get this like wood and a bunch of concrete that we're going to drive into the ground. Great. And I have a plan, right? I'm like... I'm supposed to be the trip leader and stuff. I have a plan. We're going to get this pile of wood and make it look like this platform. So I have a plan. I'm like, we're approaching this. This is how I'm going to do it. Step A, step B, step C. And as I'm standing there looking around, I realize that I have this plan, but so does he, and so does she, and so does he, and so does she. And you go around in this whole circle. Everybody has a plan for getting this thing done. So I'm listening to all this unfold, and I'm thinking, okay, obviously, Clearly, very evidently, my plan is not the best plan. That was made very clear to me. My plan was not the best plan, so I had to make a decision. Am I going to humble myself and allow this other thing, other plan to happen? Or am I going to hijack this whole deal and do it my way? And it might have taken longer and it definitely would not look as good as it could have. So what do you guys think we did? I hope you think we did the first plan, because that's what we did. We, we, we let this other plan happen, and I'll let you know that that plan belonged to our worship pastor, Frank. Uh, yeah, so round of applause for Frank. Good job. Uh, and it got built. It looks great. Um, I tell that story to tell you two things. Number one, I realized that maybe my carpentry days are still ahead of me. 
you people laugh because you've got like your fancy home ownership and stuff. Like, I'm a renter. I don't have to worry about that stuff yet. Um, so that that's a thing. I have to come to terms with that about myself. Uh, but secondly, it is that okay. I'm thinking about that, and I'm, as I'm thinking about this text, that my plan was clearly not the best plan because I saw what it was supposed to look like, but I lacked the tools and the experience to make it happen. So what I'm hoping with these sermons, and certainly my prayer for today, is that you would be able to first see that this is what godliness looks like, but then also walk out these doors with maybe a tool or two on how to help you on that journey, how to get there. That's where we're headed. Does that sound good? Okay, so let's go to 1 Timothy 4. Really excited to be in the Word with you today. This is 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 6. He says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Full acceptance. So, I see in verses 6 and 7, let's start there, I see three things at play when it comes to our godliness, the growth of our godliness. Number one is a foundation for godliness. Timothy has a, an amazing foundation for godliness. Uh, Paul, he's writing him to his protege, basically, saying, Timothy, don't you remember that you have been trained in these words of the faith and that you have been given and taught this good doctrine? He's encouraging him. It seemed like Timothy needed some extra encouragement, and this is what Paul is doing. I don't know about you, but for me, the best kind of encouragement comes from somebody who knows me and comes from somebody who has seen me walk through the life lessons that I've walked through. And maybe they can put context to it that I can't myself. Um, the best encouragement comes from somebody who knows me. So this is what Paul is doing. He's encouraging Timothy, reminding him of this is your foundation for your godliness and for your spiritual health. And what's amazing is that if you look in 2 Timothy, we learn that uh, Timothy's foundation is sort of unique. He grows up in a household with just his mom and his grandmother. And this is the foundation he grows up in. And this is who pours the word into him. They're pouring their, the word of God into their son and grandson. No father is mentioned. So uh, for me, this is a hidden discipline for parents in the room. A hidden discipline. Uh, first, to moms, like, you have been uniquely equipped to train your children in godliness and in righteousness. Uniquely equipped to do so. And that's amazing. To fathers, it's a different uh, but similar warning. It's first, like, you do not want to be the kind of father that Timothy has. Like, like you don't want your children to grow up to become a full-fledged adult. And when they are recounting their spiritual upbringing or, or telling somebody else their testimony, you're not even mentioned. You want to be the kind of father that is recalled and mentioned because you have dedicated yourself to leading your kids, your teenagers, your young adult children, and even your wife, leading your family in godliness. Fathers, let's be that kind of husband and that kind of dad. Yes? Can we say amen to that? Like, we want to be committed to leading your families. Um, that's your God-given role and your God-given job. So, hidden little discipline right in there. Parents, dedicate yourselves to leading your children in godliness. 
So, Paul, he's writing to Timothy to uh, to help him remember this and to uh, remind him that you have been taught this good words of faith and this doctrine and dedicate yourself to that. A fascinating thing I want to point out in here is that um, Paul, he tells Timothy that, okay, you've got these words of faith and then you've got doctrine. And there's a difference between those two things. You've got word and then he's got doctrine. Here's what we know. Like the words of the faith have been passed down. This means the word of God, right? He has been um, interacting with God's word. And that word, word is truth. You can get that from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God breathed, right? The word is truth, but he also has doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is simply this. It is us looking at God, is looking at the character of God. And then because of who he is, that will influence who I am. God's character influences my character. So word is truth. Doctrine is that truth in action. Uh, Paul says that doctrine is something that we, that he can follow. It's something that we can follow and dedicate ourselves to. So doctrine is kinetic, right? It is the truth of God being put into action. Truth doesn't stand alone. It causes obedience and it causes action. For example, uh, we're approaching... Well, no, we're basically already in it. Football season, right? So let's imagine, uh, as difficult it may be, uh, let's imagine that next week it's discovered that the Texans are not the worst team at football. Let's just imagine, just imagine for me, okay? Imagine that is true. Don't you think that if that were true, more people would get up and possibly go to the games who otherwise would not have gone? Yeah? That's true. Uh, We're approaching the uh, bad weather season, right? And we hear that there's a tropical storm on the way. What do we do? We take precautions, right? Maybe you cover your flower beds, or maybe even if it's going to be bad, you board up your windows. Or if you are like me, at your first scare of a tropical storm ever, you get in your car and drive to Dallas. That's what I did. Have some grace for me. Um, So we, we, we see something is true, and we act upon that. Same thing is true. This is the the basic truth that that God is love. That is true. And therefore, because God is love, that should love me to love my neighbor. Why? Because I want to love people as God has loved me. So do you see that truth, truth does not stand alone. Paul is making clear to Timothy that, yeah, you've been given words, but that, that word, that truth of God does not stand alone. It leads to doctrine, it leads to action, and it leads to obedience. This is what Paul is doing in these, in, these, in these words. So for you and me, we've got this understanding that, okay, truth cannot stand alone. It's got to push us to action, and then it pushes us to a second thing this morning. It has to push us to a desire for godliness. This is another thing I see going on in verse 6. So as we're talking about a foundation of godliness, some of you may have just thought, okay, I don't have much of a foundation for godliness. I got saved in my 20s. I got saved later on in life. And the Bible was, or maybe still is, something that's sort of new to me. That's fantastic. Literally, you are in the right place to to gain that foundation of word and truth. But godliness does not belong to the people who like have their awards from Awanas who grew up in the church hallways. Godliness is not exclusive to that club. It is available to all and available to everyone. 
So having a foundation for godliness should push us into having a desire for godliness. So if you see the very first word that we read today, Paul says, if, everybody say if. Thanks, like, like Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's a really big if, right? But Paul is not saying to Timothy, hey, if you go and just speak these words in front of these people. Just say words over them. He's saying a lot more than that. Any fool can give a speech. Paul is saying, I want you to live your life as an example for the people in this new church. A very young and a very big church in a big city. Live your life as an example so that they can see your progress. That is what drives Timothy. The fact that his faith is going to be on display. And this is what should drive you and I. That our spiritual progress would absolutely be for us and for our own godliness, but also that it would, our godliness would support your witness. So I want you to think about a child or maybe yourself going through a growth spurt. Did anybody here just have a drastic growth spurt when you were growing up? I see some hands, yes. So like, for example, my little brother, I went away to college and then came back and he had grown from like... He's going to watch this on the stream, and I apologize to him. He's, he went from uh, short and round to, like, six foot tall, and he actually does have a jaw. It's crazy. So, like, these growth spurts happen, but they don't happen by our own effort. Like, there is no such thing. Nobody has ever thought, I'm going to go to the gym and see if I can't break that six-foot barrier. I'm going to add some inches to my height. That's not a thing, Right. And, and you don't go, like, I'm going to go and lay down and actually try to stretch myself out. This is like things out of a comic book, right? That's not a real thing. No, growth spurts happen just out of health, just out of a healthy intake, healthy diet, right? I remember thinking growing up, if I drink more and more and more milk, I'll be taller and taller and taller. Well, that's not healthy either. So growth spurts come out of health. The same is true for our faith. If we want to see growth spurts in our faith, it doesn't come from our effort. It doesn't come from our um, uh, trying and trying and trying to be better. No, it comes from just spiritual health. If we desire to see these growth spurts, as I'm talking about, we need a steady diet. That's number three. We need a diet for godliness. And we're still in verse 6 to 7 here. We need a diet for godliness. Uh, Timothy's diet includes this word, but then also doctrine. Yes, this is true about God. What does it mean for my life? This is something you and I need every single day, right? Reading this book is certainly something that we should be about, but we need to be reading in in such a way that we would be receptive to it transforming us. Rather than reading it as a history book, which it is, or rather than reading it as a uh, walkthrough, this is how you live life, which it also is and can be, we want to look at it more like a window to see, okay, this is who God is, and because of that, I will change who I am, and that will influence my character. So a steady diet of God's Word is necessary. So this is what we talked about last week. Not to rehash the sermon, but here's just a snapshot of last week, right? A few things um, that we just talked about practical help for uh, reading your Bible. Number one, you need a reading plan, a reading place, and a reading time. Consistency is key with your spiritual intake. 
with your Bible intake. Consistency is key. There's a big difference between, okay, I'm going to work through, perhaps slowly, through this book of the Bible. There's a a big difference between that and saying, all right, today I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1. Today I'm going to read, you know, 2 Timothy. You know, now I'm feeling kind of adventurous. Maybe I'll go to the Old Testament. Okay, that is confusing, so let me go back to the New. Like, like that kind of hopping around, popcorn-ish reading is, is, is like trying to cross a river with these stones, trying to jump across them, jump, jump, jump here to there to get across. And it's not going to work out. What do you need? You need a steady pathway. So choose with what sticks. I like that point that Trent made. Just stay with what sticks for you and, and see what you can't gain from that. Have a steady diet, a diet of God's word. I tell the students all the time, there is no shortcut that takes you to God, that takes you around God's word. No such thing. We have to have a steady diet. But how many of you have seen these kind of new age diets that are like, Okay, you get to eat the same food, and you can eat the same amount of food and still lose weight. You ever seen these? I think that's a scam. Like, I don't understand how that works. Because my understanding of dieting is like, yeah, it's important what you put in your body, but also something's got to go. Something's got to give. Something's got to be cut out. The sweets of life, you know? Something's got to go. So what does Paul say for this? He goes to verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. He's not saying have a little bit to do with it. He's not saying just try to limit yourself with it. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Here's what I think. I think that we are really, really good at um, thinking that we're really good at monitoring what we're putting into our system. We think we're really good at regulating or keeping track or filtering what we're allowing into our eyes and into our ears. And when we do this, we, we, we do that and then we wonder, but why is my face stagnant? Surely it cannot be because of this TV show or because of this movie or musical artist or because of the, even this like video game. Like surely that thing that I'm allowing to come into my brain cannot be the thing that is stunting my growth. Well, actually, you can and probably is. Why? Because your diet and your desires have totally changed based on what you're allowing into your body. See, our desire influences what we crave. It influences our diet. So allowing X, Y, and Z into your brain can be really easily like a Trojan horse. It can be deceptive. And before we know it, we find that we desire these silly or maybe even sinful things that Jesus actually wants to redeem us from. Not only as a world, as a society, but also as an individual. Jesus wants to deliver us away from these things that entertain us. So rather, Paul says, train yourself in godliness. And then Paul makes this awesome point. An awesome point in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul's making this really great point, right? That training for godliness is infinitely more valuable. Here's another way to say what he's saying. Paul's saying that, yes, we need to treat our bodies well. God gave them to you. So treat your body well, absolutely. Take care of it. Train it. Uh, You know, like exercise, absolutely super important. Nobody's arguing that it's not important. 
But what is your, comparatively, what is your investment into your body compared to your investment into your godliness? Paul is making this point that one is going to last this lifetime, the other is going to last this lifetime, and then all the other infinite um, expanse of time. So what's going to matter in 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years? What is really going to matter? It's going to be our godliness. Yes, value your life right now, but also invest even more so, infinitely more, into your godliness and into your spiritual health. That's a wonderful point that Paul is making. So we have a foundation, we have a desire, and then we need a diet for godliness. What are we left with at this point? Let's pick up, let's read verse 10. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I think he's talking about verse 8, that our bodies are valuable and that we should treat them right because God gave them to us, bodies a temple, but then also value your godliness infinitely more. And then he says in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. What end is he talking about? He's talking about godliness. For godliness we toil and strive. Because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is who God is. This is what he's done for us. And then in verse 11, we're going to see how do we respond. How do we live? He says, command and teach these things. Timothy, he's a spiritual leader. We've got to remember that. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in in faith and in purity. So we have a foundation, a desire, and a diet for godliness. Last thing I want to point out is that we need to exercise our godliness. We need to exercise our godliness. And this is where things get really, really practical for us. But I want you to remember this, this the relationship between uh, what it looks like to diet, the relationship between word and doctrine, the truth that you're allowing into your eyes and into your ears will shape your soul and will shape your heart. And if we think that, okay, I can absorb this truth, but then I can also have one foot in the Bible and then one foot in all the other stuff, the irreverent, silly myths that Paul talks about. If I can also just have or maybe just a toe into that world, right? then we deceive ourselves in thinking that I can do that, but also not have it impact my soul and impact my heart. Spiritual health is exclusive to God's word, and it is exclusive to God's truth. So this gets really practical because how do we live out that relationship between word and doctrine? Paul gives us a, uh, a list here. And Timothy is to set an example for the church. And this is why this is in here, right? This letter would have been circulated, would have been passed around, sort of like the news. So this is in here not just for Timothy to read. It is certainly so that every believer in the city of Ephesus and beyond can read that and say, okay, this is the example that I am to follow. So he says, don't let anybody despise you for your youth. Um, if you are a youth, raise your hand. That's tough. Like, where's, where's the cutoff? I don't even know. It's interesting, though, that's such a famous verse, right? We've all heard that verse. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Just like every other famous, iconic verse, if we take it out of its context, we might misunderstand it. So uh, I'll tell you a story and then a principle. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I became a youth intern. My first, my first experience with youth ministry. 
Um, and I, we, me and this other intern, one of my best friends, uh, we took a group of kids on a hike in the woods. This was a mistake um, <laughs> because um, uh, we, we got lost. We got lost in the woods and quickly realized, actually, that's not, not hours went by, plural, hours went by before we kind of decided, me and the other intern, hey, we should probably call for help. This is a bad situation. We're out here with a bunch of 15-year-olds, and how old are we? 19 years old. No, we know everything, right? No. Like, we decide, all right, we need to call for help. It was one of those moments, maybe you've been in a situation where you step into a crisis. Maybe you're a younger adult, and you start looking around the room. Okay, like, where is the adult in the room? We need some help to remember the situation. And you realize, oh, I'm the adult in the room. So this is what Paul is doing. He is saying to Timothy that you, in order to be the spiritual leader that God has called you to be, you need to be the adult adult in the room, even at your young age. So don't let anybody despise you for your youth. How do you do that? You be the, uh, the adult. You be the adult adult in the room. You be the most spiritually mature. He's not saying that, Timothy, Timothy, just because you're young, you are going to be able to experience relevance and influence just because you're young. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you are young, therefore you need to be the most spiritually mature. He's giving him a very big challenge here. So for, for you and I, what is the example here? Same thing, that we need to be the most spiritually mature that we can. We are looking not to just follow other people's examples. We are looking to be the example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of what it looks like to um, have Christian character. So how do you be a spiritual leader? You be the adult adult in the room. You set an example in your speech and in your conduct and in your love, in your faith and in your purity. So we're going to close here with verse 12. Um, and just talk about these five things. Really, really practical stuff. I'm, going to talk, I'm just going to call these to tie a bow in this whole series. Uh, tools for the trade of godliness. These five things give us tools for the trade of godliness. Number one is speech. Um, raise your hands if your mouth has ever got you in trouble. All of them. Um, our mouths and our tongues are an extremely powerful thing. And uh, I feel like it's something that we miss very often, and they get us in trouble all the time. So here's the checklist, right? Paul says avoid silly myths. Absolutely. But also as a follower of Christ in your workplace or in your home, like your tongue is powerful. So we need to avoid falsehood. We need to avoid bitterness. We need to avoid anger. We need to avoid gossip, right? Uh, I, was, I was reading, I think it was a tweet or something. I was like, odds are if somebody is gossiping to you about somebody else, odds are they're gossiping to somebody else about you. Like we want to be people that avoid and push against gossiping and slander and talking about people behind their backs. So if your hand went up just now, and this is something that like you actually struggle with, like this is something you frequently find your tongue getting you in trouble. What if you went into this week or you chose a day or you chose an hour to say, I'm going to practice the discipline, the spiritual discipline of silence, which means I'm only going to speak when I'm spoken to. How would that change how you care, how you think and craft your words? How would that change how you think about who you're talking to? 
And, 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 and in, a, in a really cool way, how would that change your own mental processes? When I'm going to really stop and consider, am I, is what I'm about to say actually uplifting? Because that's what we want to be about, right? We want to, as believers in Christ, be able to say that I'm living a life worthy of the name of Jesus. Therefore, my speech is wholesome and my speech is, encouragement, is encouraging and lifting others up. So our tongues. Um, all of these, by the way, these five things, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, we want to be about them, and there are spiritual disciplines that can support them. I'm just giving you a couple. For conduct, this is how you live your life. So um, a question for you. Has anybody, this is fascinating if you have to experience it, has anybody ever told you something about yourself that you did not know was true about you? If you're married, this is probably true of you. So what if... Just to understand better, like this is how I'm perceived. This is like the people who live with me or the people who work with me, the people who know me and spend a lot of time with me. What do they see? What do they learn? What am I teaching them about me through my actions? What if you went up to that trusted person, you went up to your spouse and said, now listen, I don't want to fight, but what is something about me that I might not know about me? And then in that conversation, you might find an area, an area for growth or an area for correction where you see, okay, I don't want to be perceived like that. And I wished I wasn't perceived like that. So what can I do to make sure that that's not true? How can I make sure that my speech is wholesome? How can I make sure that X, Y, and Z is in tune with what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus? So we, we approach the people who care about us and we approach the people who love us to speak into us and to, and to be really vulnerable before them and say, hey, what are some areas that I can grow in? And that takes a lot of courage, but I think we can be better on the, other, other, on the opposite side of that. So speech, conduct, and now we have love. I'm thinking about the old DC Talk song, Love is a... Thank you for three of you. Thank you. Uh, love is a verb, right? You should listen to DC Talk. They had some good music back in the day. Uh, DC Talk, love is a verb. When we think about it, we say this all the time, right? Loving our neighbors. And it's like we talked about. This is a really good example of how word and truth can become action, can become doctrine. God is love. Therefore, I will love my neighbor. I want to love as he has loved me. Uh, what can that look like for you? You walking in, like if you have kids, you have kids on the basketball team or on the soccer team, and there's a new kid in town, or there's a new kid on the team, and there are new parents on the sideline. How can you, as possibly the only Christians in their life, how can you approach that person or that couple and love them? Maybe it looks like opening up your house. Maybe it looks like going out to eat after the game. Maybe it looks like inviting them over for dinner and, you know, playing spoons or something playing games thanks for that spoons is a great game like inviting other people into our home that is what hospitality and as we talked about earlier in our prayer moment like this is what jesus did right he goes into towns and he finds the people who need him the most and that's where he hangs out that's who he spends times with that's who he devotes himself to right is the people who need to be helped if we want to live like Jesus, we have to do this. We have to be hospitable. We have to be welcoming to people who need to feel seen and need to feel wanted even. And this can go if you're young, if you're in school, this can go for you too. If you're looking around, where are the people who are sitting alone at lunch? I want to be with that person. 
if, and, and, and this, just, this just applies to so many avenues of our life. But what, what is key is to understand that if God has welcomed me into his family simply because of his love, can I not do the same? Welcome people into our lives or even step into other lives for the sake of loving them, making them feel seen, and making them feel wanted. This is what it looks like to love as a Christian. So, after love, we see faith. Is anybody in here like me? Maybe you are prone to overthink. Just me? Just a couple of us? Like, I'm an overthinker. I like to rehearse. I like to talk and process things that I've read and, and thought about, right? I want to process those things. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you are prone to worry or doubt or even anxiety when it comes to our faith, increasing our faith in Jesus. One thing that you can do, which is really tangible and probably maybe even new to some of you, is to enter into a fast. What is a fast? Fast is not you just saying no, just abstaining from something you enjoy, right, for, for as long as you can do it. That's not, that's not what fasting is. Um, but temptations come, things come, and we can only hold back on those for so long. Fasting is, is different. It is saying no to something that gives me sustenance that I need so that God can give me his sustenance instead. So that God can come into a space and teach me and teach you that, hey, maybe you don't need that thing as much as you need me and my presence. So if you need an increased faith, if you need a rejuvenated um, sense of God's provision in your life, what can you do? You can enter into a fast where you say, and it's sort of like with the suffering, you enter yourself into a valley so that you can teach yourself to rely on the Lord through your stomach or through your, your taste buds. It's crazy how that God designed our bodies to work like that, but he did um, because he wants us to trust and rely on him. So if you need an increased faith, if you need a rejuvenated faith, rely, put your trust and reliance in the Lord and not in something that we consume physically. Last is purity. Before we land the plane, we've got purity. Who are we underneath? Who, what, what is your actual character? And what this can look like is when we're talking about dieting, dieting for godliness, conditioning ourselves for diet for godliness and dieting for godliness. Um, yes, we want to cut the garbage out, right? Do everything you can to get rid of the intake in your life uh, that looks that that is destructive to you, right? You can fill in the blank for that. Get rid of everything in your life that is destructive. Jesus says, cut your arm off, right, if it causes you to sin. Certainly do that thing. But similar to fasting, we need to replace that space with something else. So what am I talking about when it comes to your purity? If you need to be cleansed, if you need your brain even to be flushed out, what can you do? You can memorize chunks of scripture, scripture memory. Memorize so much scripture that it becomes your desire. And it becomes your delight, and it becomes your diet. Remember how our diet influences our desires, and di desires influence our diet, right? If you're memorizing chunks of Scripture, it is going to change and renew, like Paul talks about in Romans. It will renew your mind. So purity can come from our flushing out of the garbage and replacing that space with memorizing Scripture, and I'm not talking about one verse. I'm talking about passages. Memorizing God's word that is meant to transform us.
So we, Timothy, he sets an example of these five things of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And there are so many different ways that we can ourselves build into that process for ourselves so that we can participate in that kind of spiritual health. So that's the how. I want to spend a couple minutes telling you this is the why. Why do we pursue godliness? Why would we even enter ourselves into that difficult, um, challenging space of being a disciplined person? And and the answer is really clear. Um, Why pursue godliness? Because Jesus delights in your godliness. And he delights in it in two ways. Jesus says in John 15... Um, that he, his greatest desire for you is that your joy would be his joy and that his joy would be your joy and that it would be full. This is in John 15. So he wants his joy to be our joy. Jesus is, as far as I can tell, the most disciplined person who have ever walked the earth, the most disciplined person. He can go head to head with even the devil and come out victorious on that. He's the most disciplined we can get. Jesus is the most disciplined person in the face of the war on the, in history, right? But he is also the most joyful, clearly. How can somebody who is disciplined also be joyful? It makes me think of my librarian growing up uh, in, in like elementary school who would look, literally look down at you over the glasses, right? You know what I'm talking about? This person, like, maybe you can say she's disciplined, but the most joyless person you've ever met. So, um, Jesus can somehow be disciplined, but also joyful. So how does Jesus delight in your godliness? Because he gives us his joy. So Jesus delights in your discipline, but he also delights in your delight in him. And that is glorious. That Jesus would offer us his joy. Not just follow this rule, follow this rule, follow this rule. Jesus' desire for you is that you would be a fully and complete joy, joyful person. This is Jesus' desire for you. And the plan that he sets in place, the picture that he gives us is this picture of godliness. And then he gives us the tools to build that godliness up, right? So Jesus delights in our delight in him, and his joy is available to you this morning. So what we're going to do now is actually go to a time of communion. We're going to go to the table. Worship band is going to make their way back up, and we'll enter into a time of um, response for this. But Jesus' joy and Jesus' godliness and Jesus' righteousness has been offered to us. And It originates from the cross. Because the reason we can be godly, the reason you can be disciplined in your faith, is because Jesus has purchased the freedom for you to do so, and he did that on the cross. He purchased the freedom for you to be godly and to pursue this kind of righteousness. So we go to the table to remember what Jesus has done on the cross. He has purchased the forgiveness of our sins, and he has purchased you. He has atoned for your sins. This is what he has done at the cross. So this is what we do. We, we approach the table in a way to say that this little wafer and this cup, it resembles what? It resembles Jesus' broken body. 
And Jesus' broken body is not because he himself was broken, but because he took our brokenness upon himself. And then you've got this cup, a cup that represents the spilt blood of Jesus that washes us with forgiveness. The opportunity and the freedom to pursue godliness comes from the fact that Jesus' godliness and Jesus' holiness atoned for and paid for your sin on the cross. This is why we come to the table, to experience and remind ourselves and remember this is what happened on the cross. So we've put tables around the room and we're going to enter into a a response time where when you are ready, when you're ready and when your people are ready, you can get up, go grab the elements and take it together as a family, as a group, um, or maybe as a small group, however you want to do it. These are available to you. But one last thing, we're talking about conditioning ourselves for godliness, exercising our godliness and exercising our faith We're doing that right here in this moment as we take communion. How? How are we exercising our faith? It's because we are remembering and exercising our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, in his finished work on the cross. So as we go to the table, just have before you this truth of what Jesus has done on the cross and what he has purchased, what he has purchased us from, but then also what he has purchased us for and to do, which is to pursue godliness and to possess and obtain his full joy. So we're going to enter into a time of response. And when you are ready, you get up and, uh, and t- partake. Let me say a quick prayer and then we'll enter into this time. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the freedom that you have purchased for us uh, to even approach this table and participate in this um, action that you left for us called communion. So, Lord, I pray that if there's any business that we need to do, if we look at our speech or our conduct, if we look at our love for people, our faith, Lord, or our purity, if there's any area that we need to do business with you, I pray that we would enter in and do that right now so that we can approach your table in um, just full awe and reverence for what you accomplished for us on the cross, Jesus. I pray for us as we step into however we need to respond in this next moment. Would you make that clear for us? pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.